Hello there, great to have your company for this last MLEX podcast of the year. We cover the big regulatory stories from around the world with the assistance of our team of reporters. My name is James Paniki. I'm the senior editor for MLEX's Asia-Pacific coverage. Now, one for the sports fans in about 10 minutes' time. We'll take a look at how competition issues have weaved their way through to the management of sporting events in Europe with the rights of two ice skaters at centre stage. First up, though, how could we not acknowledge the tumultuous events unfolding in a Texas courthouse where a posse of US states have banded together to take on search giant Google? There have been two multi-state complaints filed against the company, one submitted by Texas and nine other states alleging antitrust violations, and a second filed by 38 attorneys general over Google's alleged illegal search monopolization. The lawsuits were filed in Texas and Washington, D.C. Mike Swift is MLEX's chief global digital risk correspondent, and he's based in San Francisco. Dave Pereira is a technology correspondent from our offices in D.C., Both Dave and Mike join me on today's podcast. Now, Mike, the uh, Google ad tech case is slated to play out in a small courthouse in Plano, Texas, while the other big tech case will be in the federal district courthouse in Washington, D.C. What are the ramifications of those different venues? Well, there's a bunch. Um, One is that uh, the Eastern District of Texas, where the Texas Attorney General filed suit, is known as the rocket docket because it moves so quickly. So on uh, the median time uh, from filing a suit to trial in the Eastern District of Texas is less than uh, 18 months. In Washington, D.C., it's almost four years. So it's likely that Google's going to have a lot less time to prepare its defense in Texas. Um, and that helps Texas and hurts it. Um, uh, for one thing, the, after they've, they've already ha- gone ahead and hired outside counsel, so the taxi meter is running on that, and that can be really expensive. So um, they want to move fast. But it also uh, puts pressure really on both sides because they have to uh, prepare for trial so quickly. And uh, it may be that the attorney general is really hoping for a settlement before they actually get to trial. And, and Mike, just to be super clear on this, this is in the interest of the prosecutors because it will be a lot cheaper ultimately, right? They'll save some money. That's uh, a big part of the reason, but it also means that Texas is really on its home turf. And um, the judge that they've drawn looks like a pretty good one for them. Uh, this judge actually formerly worked for the Texas Attorney General's office as the Deputy Solicitor General. So um, it's not like they're going to be complete strangers to one another. And, and so that's uh, certainly an advantage as well. Now, alleged privacy violations are a big part of the Texas case. Why is that important? Why is uh, privacy such a a key issue here? So in this case, they are, in addition to the uh, antitrust claims, are also saying that uh, Google has violated a a consumer deception uh, law, which is a state law in Texas. And that state law carries statutory damages, which as I understand it, cannot be uh, modified by a judge, which um, are really significant, um, up to between ten dollars and $50,000 per violation. And if Google were to be found uh, to have violated that for every consumer in Texas that it does business with, that would be an absolutely astounding number. So that is one huge hammer that 
the Texas Attorney General can sort of hold out over Google as they uh, seek leverage for a settlement. Okay, Dave, now it, it gets a bit confusing here, but Texas and nine other states have also sued Google over allegations that it monopolized the display advertising market. What is that market and how is it possible that uh, Google could have dominated it? So uh, display advertising is uh, Google's other advertising business. The, the other advertising business is engaged in besides advertisements that appear against search results. Display advertising is uh, you go on to ESPN.com, you know, the, the, the sports news website, and uh, you see an advertising there for sneakers or for an SUV or whatever. The way that ad got there depends on a lot of uh, rather complex, rather involved back-end technology. And uh, Google has invested quite a lot of money and a lot of effort over the years in order to make sure that it, it is very prominent in uh, in that field, in the process of shepherding data and money in order to make sure that advertisements that are very likely to interest you because of what you've done already online will appear on these third-party websites. Dave, it's not often that we mention Facebook and Google in in the context of, of the same piece of legal action, but this time the real explosive, the really explosive allegation is an accusation that uh, Google and Facebook colluded to dominate the market. What is that all about? That really is explosive. So Google has faced accusations for years uh, now that uh, it's used its uh, might uh, to uh, monopolize the uh, display advertising market. Uh, there's a number of things that it's done uh, allegedly or, or certainly that uh, a lot of people in the ad tech market say that it's done in order to stymie competition by forcing advertisers into using its technology, its ad tech stack. This accusation about Facebook really uh, goes beyond any of that. It it's essentially saying uh, the Texas AG and then the uh, nine other states that signed on to the complaint are saying that Facebook cooked up a deal for Facebook to roll back plans it had to use a type of display ad technology that would challenge Google's dominance. So they're, they're actually alleging out-and-out collusion between these two tech giants. Um what it is, is Facebook in 2017 made a public announcement that it was going to back a type of technology used to place ads on third-party websites called header binning, the specifics of which we don't need to get into. But Google really didn't, and it still doesn't like header bidding because it views it as a challenge to its ability to uh, ensure that, uh, that publishers of websites like like ESPN.com are using its technology. And so when Facebook made this announcement, apparently, according to, to this complaint, that kicked off uh, a whole bunch of uh, posturing on the two sides that led to meetings that actually led to an agreement for Google to, I mean, for Facebook to back off of uh, its plans to use header bidding and instead use uh, the Google uh, ad tech stack. And, and I should point out that most of Facebook advertising occurs on Facebook. That's that's not what we're talking about in, in, in this place, in, in this context. What we're talking about here is that Facebook 
also uses something called the Facebook Audience Network in order to uh, use its data about users in order to place advertisements on on third-party websites or on mobile apps. Dave, just to be uh, clear again, uh, so there is no question that these uh, meetings between Google and Facebook uh, did take place, right? And there's no doubt that Facebook did walk away from a planned rollout of of its own uh, ad tech plans. Uh, it's just a question of whether or not those meetings and those actions amounted to collusion. Is that right? I think the first we ever heard of these meetings between Facebook uh, and Google, problem is that much of this, much of the complaint is is redacted. Just when you're getting to the interesting, juicy little bits, like say secret meetings between two uh, Silicon Valley tech competitors about how to uh, dominate the ad market. So. It would be really good for for uh, the the attorneys general to uh, show their hand a little bit more as this proceeds to trial. I think, I assume, we can take the Texas AG uh, on its word that these meetings did occur. Certainly, if they didn't occur, the uh, the lawsuit would be in a uh, isn't going to go very far. Yeah, indeed, indeed. What do Google and Facebook say about all of this, Dave? Well. Google, of course, uh, denies that it's colluding. Facebook has, has kept silent. Yeah, and just just to to jump in here, um, guys. I mean, what what Dave said is absolutely right. I mean that um, if there was one sort of bombshell uh, thing that we didn't we weren't prepared to see when we saw the suit, it was this allegation that these two companies had colluded, and we knew these suits were coming for a long time. But when we read the complaint and saw that, we were like, "Wow!" So, um, but the frustrating thing is that the details of this are all redacted from the complaint at this point. So it's really hard to to gauge, you know, how how solid this allegation is at this mm. point. Okay, Mike, let's let's talk more broadly about how significant or or notable, I suppose, is it that so many states have agreed to band together to challenge Facebook and Google's market power? Yeah, it's notable. It's certainly um, not unprecedented. It has happened many times before when the, the states have joined together to sue big tobacco, for example, or to over uh, op- opioid abuse or uh, generic drugs. Um, there have been uh, multi-state complaints that have gotten all 50 uh, states involved. This time, it appears that um, every state, with the exception of Alabama and South Carolina, has joined one, at least one of the Google or Facebook lawsuits. So um, that is um, quite notable. Uh, when Microsoft was sued 22 years ago by the DOJ, they got 20 states. So this is more than double that total. So uh, it, it's certainly an achievement, uh, especially at this time of you know, hyper-partisanship here in the United States that uh, so many Democratic and Republican uh, attorneys general signed on to these complaints. And Mike, we touched briefly before on the resourcing issue. Now, Google and Facebook, we would assume, have uh, almost unlimited resources to defend themselves here. So will the states be able to generate the uh, financial resources to litigate over the course of the years against uh, these two tech giants? Well, they say they will, but we don't really know yet. Uh, I asked uh, four or five states uh, who are heading uh, the complaint against Google last week to 
disclose how much money they have set aside and how they're going to share the costs, but uh, they declined to answer that question. So uh, the jury remains out, uh, so to speak. Um, in the case of Texas, we're also wondering about that suit, uh, and we just don't know yet. It's going to be very expensive. This could go on easily for five years, so uh, it's not going to be cheap. And Dave, on a final note, apparently the film Star Wars is somehow also wrapped up in this. Can you explain that to our listeners? That sounds a bit uh, bizarre, doesn't it? Uh, Yes. So uh, according to the Texas complaint, the Texas AG complaint, uh, Google executives uh, had a secret name for their agreement with Facebook, and uh, they called it Jedi Blue, Jedis uh, being the uh, cast of... uh, uh, warrior monks uh, in the Star Wars franchise that uh, are uh, supposed to be uh, the good guys saving uh, saving the universe. Um, I found what I think, what I would guess, is a reference to uh, another sci-fi franchise inside the the complaint, and that is uh, Terminator, because the complaint, when it's explaining how ad tech uses a user's identity. It throws in a rather gratuitous example to somebody named, for example, John Connor. And John Connor is a central character in the uh, Terminator franchise. He is the, um, he is the, uh, the, the man who is, uh, destined to lead, uh, humanity's resistance against Skynet, which is the, uh, evil artificial intelligence that, uh, is set, uh, trying to exterminate humanity and, of course, is uh, sending back uh, futuristic robots uh, back to the 80s in the form of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger to uh, to kill his mother. So there we go. Uh, John Connor, uh, who, according to the complaint, lives in Los Angeles, drives a Harley Davidson motorcycle and wears Oakley sunglasses, <laughs> which sounds, sounds like a... Like like a movie reference to me, and my kudos today for uh, for flagging the Terminator reference because that's my favorite sci-fi uh, movie franchise. But uh, to me, like the the Jedi reference was the thing that made me believe more than anything else that the the collusion could be real because to me that just sounded like the code word that Google would pick. You know, the people at Google would pick to for their secret you know dalliance with Facebook. So I, I guess we'll see. But but uh, it was kind of cool to. See see those references in there yes definitely some good reporting there on on dave's part and uh, mike thank you so much also for the description of the texas courthouse where all of this is going to unfold of course i immediately looked it up on what else but google maps so i no doubt fed the google ad tech machine in the process so thank you uh, to both of you for your uh, work this year let's catch up again in 2021 my pleasure thank you Dave Pereira is a correspondent with MLEX's tech team and he's based in Washington, D.C. Mike Swift is our chief global digital risk correspondent and he was joining us from San Francisco. And we'll post a link to some of their analysis at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight.com and click on the Insight Center tab. Now, get your skates on because we're about to talk sport. Thanks for your company today. This is MLEX's weekly podcast on regulatory affairs. My name is James Paniki. Now, it's not every day that judges at the EU's general court get involved with sports management, but that's exactly what has happened recently with the court siding with an antitrust finding against the International Skating Union. The ruling wasn't an unmitigated victory for the European Commission, but it is likely to bring some clarity to Europe's sporting structures. 
The person who has been following this story all the way through is MLEX's editor-in-chief, Lewis Crofts, and Lewis joins me now from Brussels. Now, Lewis, why is a hard-nosed competition reporter taking an interest in the fate of two speed skaters? What is it to you? <laughs> um, what is it to Europe? Um, this was launched, this investigation, it was launched at a time when the European Commission president, Jean-Claude Juncker, had a slogan which was big on the big things, small on the small things, so that Europe would do the important stuff and wouldn't sweat the small stuff. So it is a very good question why they decided to carry um, a, a torch for Mark Tweeted and Niels Kerstholz, who were the two Dutch speed skaters who found they couldn't take part in an event organised by a Korean company uh, to take place in Dubai. You think, what the hell is the European Commission doing here? Well, what it was doing was taking on, essentially, the way sports are run. And because of the way precedents are set in the European Union, if you take on one sport or one company and the rules you establish, they apply to all companies so or all sports. So which would you rather do, James? Would you rather take on Formula One or Premier League football or basketball or the NBA or whatever? Or would you prefer to take on two Dutch speed skaters and uh, an ice rink in Dubai. But from a competition perspective, what is the exact problem that we're dealing with here? Why do those issues sound alarm bells for competition regulators? So the exact problem is that a sports governing body, so think of the Premier League, or in this instance, it was the International Skating Union, has a conflict of interest. It wears two hats. Uh, The first thing it does is it decides on the size of uh, the bats and the rackets and the balls and how many people can be on the pitch and how long a game lasts and how wide the pitch is. And the second thing it decides is the league structure, the club structure, what games can be played, when the calendar's played, who can organise the games. So you've essentially got two hats. One hat is the rules of the game and the second is the organisation of the sport. And it's that organisation of the sport which it won't have escaped your notice over the past, you know, 50 years has become increasingly commercialised. While we've seen, you know, big bucks flooding into some of the big sports, it's happening in the smaller sports as well. And it's that second part, which is a government body essentially has a monopoly over the organisation of the sport and can decide... Okay, we're going to play. We're going to do this game, these games in this league format on this day. What happens if another person wants to come and say, "I've got a really, really good idea for a uh, show jumping competition where they all dress up as, you know, I don't know, uh, some elaborate character, uh, different characters from Star Wars, and it's going to be great because it's going to establish all. It's going to establish a new competition for anyone who likes horse horse um, uh, jumping and Star Wars. And it's a ludicrous idea, but it could be a commercial opportunity. And the governing body of of, um, horse jumping would say, no, that rather undermines the integrity of the game uh, and and it's not not the way we want to go. Uh, And that's fine. Um, But the problem is the more sport commercialises, the more people come up with other ideas, other ideas for other cycling competitions that aren't the Tour de France or other uh, cricket competitions, which aren't just the usual formats of the game. And... The fear is that a um, governing body, which is essentially the monopoly organiser of these things, excludes these other kinds of formats of the sport, which crucially, A, could be fun for us to watch if you're into Star Wars and horse jumping, 
uh, and B, could give the sports men and women a chance to make more money. And in this instance, what the ISU or the skating union said is that if you, a sports, if these two speed skaters take part in um, another competition, we will ban you. We will ban you for life. And if you think a speed skater probably has a couple of years in him or her, uh, and you get banned for a couple of years, just a couple of years, you missed the Olympic Games, you maybe only had one Olympic Games in you, if you're of a certain age, maybe you had two max. And so basically it stuffs your entire career, stuffs your ability to make money. So what did the EU courts decide on this? They did um, find that that kind of a ban was excessive, right? So there's no doubt about that. Exactly. Exactly. So what happened is the European Commission took a decision and said um, this kind of behaviour, these kinds of eligibility criteria, they're called, uh, were illegal. And you know, they're, they're from the from the position of the International Skating Union, they said, look, we're not interested. We don't. We, it's our job to uphold the integrity of the sport. And this Dubai um, event was going to have betting on it. We don't want betting in the game. So uh, we're going to we're going to clamp down on that. So what the court decided is a court sided with the commission and said, indeed, the rules, the eligibility criteria were too severe. They were too hardcore um, for the for the sports men and women. But crucially, what the court said, and this is what's um, made um, sports federations quite happy, is they've said you can have these kinds of pre-authorization mechanisms. So if you're the governing body, other people who want to set up other events have to come to you and ask. You can have this and you can check them out and you can have a look at whether there's betting or whether there's, um, uh, you know, it upholds the spirit of the game, um, whether it's all above board. You can you can whether it keeps the horses safe, for example, whether it keeps the um, 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 audience safe. You can have a pre-authorization mechanism. Uh, and that's crucial for these um, uh, governing bodies because it means they get to vet other competitions. But the criteria can't be too severe that it would absolutely stuff a, uh, a sports um, man or, or sportswoman from, um, from competing. Okay, so is this a revolution for all sports or is it specific to this particular sport? I mean, I wonder what this could mean for, say, leagues and event organisers across Europe. So they were all uh, pretty scared after this, um, the commission took up this case. Uh, in the first place, you had lots of people um, looking at their rules, swimming, and volleyball, and netball, and not just the big, not just the big leagues uh, and the big sports, because as I said, all of them are commercialised and all of them make important revenue from from events. They will all be happy because the court has decided that the pre-authorization mechanism can exist as such. Um, it's just they will be checking that their criteria for it are not too strict. So the European Commission has won the case essentially, but there was one point that it lost, which referred to arbitration. Tell me about why that might be a key issue. What is so significant about arbitration? Um, It's very important for the sporting world that when there are disputes, and there are often disputes, because as I said, these things are, this is people's business, this is people's livelihood, this is people's careers. Um, When there are court disputes, they all lead to something called the Court of Arbitration in Sport, which is in Lausanne in Switzerland. And I know you have your atlas out, James, and you'll know that Switzerland is not part of the EU, which means that essentially um, all cases uh, go beyond 
uh, Europe's borders and end up in end up in Switzerland. And this was a concern for the European Commission. It said, "Hang on, how can a citizen such as these two gentlemen enforce their EU rights, their right uh, to go to court, and the right to fair competition, which is in in the EU treaties? How can we be certain that those are going to be safeguarded if the court case leaves uh, Europe's borders and ends up in in Switzerland?" And this was seen as um, also a pretty bullish attempt by the European Commission to take on an entire the entire architecture of sport, which has um, this Lausanne court. And you, you know, go to the Lausanne court and you can see all sorts of um, famous um, stars taking on their cases and all sorts of lesser people who are just seeking to have their rights protected. And the, and the court took issue with how the Commission wanted to take this on. And essentially, uh, essentially annulled the commission's case at this point and said, "Do you know what? Having a centralised tribunal for all sports is actually a pretty sensible thing. Um, lots of sports function similarly. Lots of sports um, uh, have a, you know, they're very, they have particularities, and having a central specialised court for that a is not a bad thing. And b, the fact that it's in Switzerland doesn't really mean much because um, these uh, sports men and women can still take a case to their local court." And um, you know, in, in Brussels, for example, and the Brussels court can still send that to the EU courts, which is indeed what's happening at the moment. Lots of um, cases happen in Belgium about, um, uh, about footballers, uh, the buying and selling of footballers. So essentially, it was a bit of a crafty attempt by the commission and the court was wise to it and, and threw it out. Yeah, uh, look, look, all of this is fine, but I wonder if there's an argument to be made here, Lewis, uh, that to bring arguments of competition to bear on sporting leagues is, you know, somewhat preposterous in the sense that if you really unleashed market forces, say, on a league of whatever, you know, 10 badminton teams, that would lead to them acquiring one another, fighting for market space. The league wouldn't really amount to much because many teams would probably fall by the wayside. I just wonder if sport is really the right venue for this type of conversation. It's a it's an excellent question. Sport has always had special rules in the EU treaties. They recognise that sport, you know, while these competition rules are sort of like a holy biblical truth that ap- apply to all subjects, um, they've recognised that sport has a special place because you need this particular structure to help the grassroots and to uh, and to d- defend the integrity and identity of sport which means so much beyond just commerce uh, we all love playing even though we don't get paid for it but at the same time this commercial imperative in sport has grown exponentially in recent years and the commission and the courts rightly say is when you do encroach into this commercial area the commercial i.e. competition rules should apply so it is that's why this case is so interesting because it's a rarity you don't often get these things because it's 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 muddy you need to find a dividing line where you stop being a someone ruling on the shape of balls and the size of pitches and you start encroaching into um, commercial territory. Sometimes that's really obvious. You look at Formula One and you look at um, the Premier League, which are just flooded with cash. And it's obvious that the whole thing is a commercial enterprise. Uh, well, most of it is a commercial enterprise. Uh, less so if you're looking at a local local volleyball league. But I'll give you two examples of times when the competition law involvement can make things look a little bit a little bit tricky. You look at um, football uh, broadcast rights, TV rights, yeah, and you say, okay, everyone in the Spanish league uh, has the right to sell their own uh, TV games. 
And surprise, surprise, Barcelona and Madrid can sell their games for loads and loads, whereas the smaller clubs can't because no one wants to watch the smaller clubs or fewer people want to watch the smaller clubs. That's not very good for the sport. If Barcelona cashes in, you know, 50 million per game or 100 million per game, whereas the smaller clubs uh, can't get TV rights. That's why you allow them to negotiate together collectively and then spread the money between them so that the smaller clubs get more of the of, of, of the benefit. Why? Because there wouldn't be a football league if it wasn't for smaller clubs. Um, they have to exist in order that the Barcelonas and the Madrids have got someone to play against. And the second one is you look at something like boxing or, uh, or darts and you have... You know, in boxing, you have five or four different um, titles. The world champion, super heavyweight world champion, blah, 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 uh, can only really be world champion if he's won in all four of the separate leagues, all four of the separate belts. Same goes for darts. If you want to watch darts, which I know you do, James, because you love you know, a couple of pints and throw some arrows at a, at a board. I do. Um, I do. Uh, you can look at it on three different channels in the UK. One channel which is for one um, league and another channel which is for another, another channel which is for another. Um, so, you know, you do get, you can get the fragmentation of the sport if you don't give a governing body the chance to unify. Mm. Lewis, this is all uh, fantastic news for all of the aspiring uh, speed skaters and uh, darts players. I, I, I personally am very happy about it. <laughs> Great news for you. My You're... speed skating career is, <laughs> is going to take off next that, that's week. That's right. I've if, got if some this, lycra for Christmas. If this journalism caper doesn't quite work out, you've got your <laughs> uh, second career ready for you. So uh, thank you so much for walking me uh, through this. And uh, it's been great talking throughout the year. Thank you. Take care. Lewis Crofts is MX's editor-in-chief. He was speaking to us from Brussels in what has become a bit of a Star Wars-themed podcast. And we'll post a link to his analysis of this court ruling at the usual place, mlexmarketinsight.com. Now, I may indeed find myself before a judge if I neglect to remind you that you can subscribe to MLEX Podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud and Stitcher. Do it before the break so that when we return in a few weeks' time, you'll be ready to download the first podcast for 2021. Thank you very much for your company today and throughout the year. I'm James Panicki, MLEX's Asia-Pacific Senior Editor. And from everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, have a great and safe break. We'll see you in the new year. Bye for now. Music